Well, Father, you are an awesome God. You created the universe with a plan. We messed it up, but you already had a plan for that too. The devil thinks perhaps that he's going to win, but we already know the outcome. And we know that you will reign supreme. Jesus Christ, you will reign on the throne forever and ever. And so we choose to worship you even now. We ask that you teach us from your word. Help us to understand a little bit about the end from Zechariah, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, turn to Zechariah chapter 14. We're going to look at, uh, that's page 543 in the Bibles that we give away. So if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Someone will bring you one. It's our gift to you. And we're going through the book of Zechariah verse by verse. We're actually at the last chapter. So this is the last message on Zechariah. And it's all about the return of the king. Okay, so I thought, you know, since we're reading about the return of the king, perhaps we should watch a video clip from the return of the king. But it is not this day. An hour of wolves and shattered shields when the age of men comes crashing down. But it is not this day. This day we fight. By all that you hold dear on this good earth, I bid you stand, men of the West! Frodo. 
No, we're not going to watch the rest of the movie. That is one version of how the end and the last battle and the return of the king will, will take place. But in our passage, we see the real thing. What's going to happen? What will the last battle, the return of the king and the end of the world be like? Our passage tells us. And I want you to notice three things in this passage. Notice Satan's gruesome attack, Jesus' total defeat of the enemy, and the conclusion of worship when everything is right in the world. First of all, verses 1 through 3, Satan's gruesome attack on Jerusalem. Zechariah 14, verse 1. Look, a day belonging to the Lord is coming when the plunder taken from you will be divided in your presence. I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem for battle. The city will be captured, the houses looted, and the women raped. Half the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be removed from the city. Then the Lord will go out to fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. Now here we see Satan's gruesome attack on Jerusalem. We can combine this along with Ezekiel when it speaks of Gog and as well as the book of Revelation. And we recognize one thing. It is always darkest before the dawn. Kind of like our movies, you know, right? Uh, the, the hopeless situation until the very last second and then the hero comes through, right? You know, you've seen movies, anybody? Watch movies? Okay, yeah, you got it. I think those are like echoes of the real thing. This is what is going to take place. But we're told ahead of time exactly what's going to happen so that we're not caught off guard. And that is because of God's goodness. If we had time, we could look at Daniel 9, 24 through 27, actually gives a grand scenario of exactly what will happen in a timeline, etc. But we don't have time for that. You can, you can look at that another time. But why are all the nations gathering against Israel. Notice it says, verse 2, I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem for battle. So why are all the nations gathering against Israel? Well, our passage says, first of all, it's God's design. It's God himself. I, God is talking here. He will gather all the nations against Jerusalem for battle. Now, God is allowing this to happen because he knows what the end is going to be, the result of this. But we see God is in complete control even of this battle. But we also know, especially from the book of Revelation, that it is Satan's design as well. The Satan, in Re especially Revelation 13, describes this global scope of battle against Jerusalem. One person said that this reflects an ideological conflict to remove a non-cooperative element that blocked the way to an international world order. You see, according to Revelation 13, Satan's plan is globalism. Satan's plan is to have a one-world government under the Antichrist. And that's what we see, except, and, uh, and it seems that all the nations are going to cooperate with this except for one, and that's Israel, okay? And so that pesky little nation they plan on getting rid of and wiping off the face of the earth, and that's why they're attacking them here. 
Sadly, it seems as if the United States as well will turn against her because it says all the nations. But look at verse 2b, the end of the verse. It says, but the rest of the people will not be removed from the city. Then the Lord will go out to fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. We see here the faithful remnant have no worries that the others are going to have these things happen, but the faithful remnant will be preserved and protected by the Lord. So that brings up a point that I think is valid that we want to look at. Our safety doesn't depend on our distance from danger. It depends on our nearness to God. Um, Let me read an illustration from Stephen Rummage's commentary on this and uh, he says one evening I was walking our little Yorkshire terrier down the sidewalk Joey weighs at most six pounds and he lives by this motto love all people hate all dogs every time we take him out we have to be on the lookout for other dogs because Joey goes crazy barking and trying to attack On this particular evening, as I was walking, I heard a lady yell from her driveway, come back here. I looked to my left and saw a white poodle running away from this lady towards Joey and me. Joey started barking furiously. I reached down and picked up Joey in my arms. As soon as I did, that other dog ran up and nailed me right in the leg. His bite broke the skin and drew blood. Then our attacker ran back to the lady in the driveway who apologized profusely. On the way back home, I looked down at my little Yorkie and said, I'll Reese, remember, Joey, I got bit for you. That could have been you, but I took the hit. Joey didn't seem to be all that impressed by my sacrifice. He just kept walking and wagging his tail, but I do think he knows somehow that his safety simply depends on his closeness to me. As long as he is with me, he knows I will do everything I can do to protect him. Now, here's what the Bible says about you and your God. Your safety does not depend on your distance from danger. There will be times when the path that God has for you will take you into dangerous, difficult, tragic, and even hurtful circumstances. But your safety does not depend on your distance from danger. It depends on your nearness to God. And so we see Satan's gruesome attack on Jerusalem and how, though the faithful remnant have no worries and really For all intents and purposes, I think that Christians can sing the song. It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. Right? Okay? Non-Christians should not be singing that song. They have every reason to worry as we see how things are going to end up in this world. But Satan's gruesome attack on Jerusalem leads to Jesus' total defeat of the enemy. Let's read this, verses 4 through 15. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. The Mount of Olives will be split in half from east to west, forming a huge valley, so that half the mountain will move to the north and half to the south. 
You will flee by my mountain valley, for the valley of the mountains will extend to Azal. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of King Uzziah of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. On that day there will be no light. The sunlight and moonlight will diminish. It will be a unique day known only to the Lord. Without day or night, but there will be light at evening. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half of it toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea, in summer and winter alike. On that day, the Lord will become king over the whole earth, the Lord alone in his name alone. All the land from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem, will be changed into a plain, but Jerusalem will be raised up and will remain on its site from the Benjamin Gate to the place of the first gate, to the corner gate, and from the Tower of Hananel to the royal wine presses. People will live there, and never again will there be a curse of complete destruction. So Jerusalem will dwell in security. This will be the plague with which the Lord strikes all the people who have warred against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. On that day, a great panic from the Lord will be among them, so that each will seize the hand of another, and the hand of one will rise against the other. Judah will also fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be collected, gold, silver, and clothing in great abundance. The same plague as the previous one will strike the horses, mules, camels, donkeys, and all the animals that are in those Camps. So here we see, and I wish we had time to go into the details of all of this, but we don't. But here we see that Jesus' total defeat of the enemy, very similar to Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, we have that great declaration uh, of God. The begin, this is how the, the book of Psalms begins. Chapter 1 is an introduction, and then chapter 2 begins this way. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them and he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. So now, kings, be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the sun or he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion for his anger will ignite at any moment. But all who take refuge in him are happy. Here we see this great battle. The kings are going to go against the Lord and his anointed one, Jesus. But he says, pay homage or kiss the son lest he be angry because Jesus wins and defeats the enemy completely. We see this in Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16 as well, when Jesus comes riding on the horse, and by the sword in his mouth, which is the word of God, he destroys the enemy. This is the battle of Armageddon. Now, I want to say this. Many people, many theologians, even conservative theologians, interpret passages like Zechariah and Revelation 
symbolically and figuratively. Basically, they say it just means bad stuff will happen throughout the centuries and God will help us. But I believe that we're supposed to take this literally, and though God does sometimes write figuratively, so we have to figure out when and where, but we have very good reason to understand this in a literal fashion because it coincides, Zechariah coincides with the book of Revelation so closely, as well as with the book of Ezekiel, when it speaks of Gog and Magog. It all fits together. But not only that, because it coincides with Acts chapter 1, 9 through 12. In Acts chapter 1, 9 through 12, a very literal thing took place. That is when Jesus, last thing he does is he speaks to his disciples and he ascends up to heaven. And he ascends from the Mount of Olives. And the angel says, just as he left, he will come back to this very spot, the Mount of Olives. And that's what we see in our passage. I believe in a literal ascent into heaven of Jesus Christ. And therefore, I think we should take this literally as well. He's coming back, just like he says. And when he lands on the Mount of Olives, (laughs) the whole place... Uh, shakes. So let's watch, let's look at this, okay? Verses 4 through 11, Jesus transforms Jerusalem. Uh, Notice the tectonic shift accompanying the Lord's return. Uh, Oops, that's a Uh, The tectonic shift, uh, we see Jerusalem will be elevated. We'll see later when when we look at uh, Isaiah 2, verse 2, that this is actually also, uh, Isaiah says this will take place. Notice there will be no light, uh, a special day. Joel chapter 2, verses 30 and 31 speak of this, as well as Revelation 6, 12 through 14. Then we see the the mention of living water uh, that takes place. Uh, and we see this also in Ezekiel 47, a, a river flowing out of Jerusalem. By the way, when it speaks of living water, that's it can and should be interpreted spiritually, but it's also literal, Okay. Living water in the uh, ancient times, first, you know, uh, times of the Bible, all that meant was fresh flowing water. Okay? It was living. It was running. It was a, a river or an aquifer, etc. Okay, So that's what it's referring to. In the desert, you had a couple choices. You had the flowing water or you had cisterns that caught the water and it's kind of mucky and yucky, but you know, if that's all you got, that's all you got. This is the living water, but I do think we're supposed to also see an element of a spiritual element as well because of John chapter 7. So let's go ahead and look at there. John chapter 7, verses 37 and 38. Jesus mentions this. And in John 37, quite interestingly, it says, on the last and most important day of the festival. Now you wonder, which festival is he at? Well, according to chapter 7, verse 2, he's at the festival of shelters, or the uh, also known as the Feast of Booths or uh, a Feast of Tabernacles. So that's all the just, just different ways of translating that Greek phrase there. Okay, so it's the same festival mentioned in Zechariah 14 that we'll see a little bit later. And so that's why I think there's... Uh, significance here. So on that last day of that festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. He said this about the spirit 
Those who believe in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit, for the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Okay, so he's speaking of on the day of Pentecost, after Jesus ascends to heaven, on the day of Pentecost, he pours out his Holy Spirit on his people. And from then on, we all, when you become born again, you receive the Holy Spirit in your life. But you're also promised these experiential encounters with the Holy Spirit that are described as streams of living water flowing from deep within you. Now, doesn't that sound good? Okay, that's what he's promising us. Even now, where we can experience the presence of the Lord in these powerful ways, where he empowers us, he blesses us, etc., cetera, uh, where we can even experience the joy of the Lord even in the midst of our uh, difficult circumstances, but especially when Jesus comes back. Now, when Jesus comes back, whoo, it's just going to be awesome forever, all right? So we long for this day, but here we see the, the massive transformation taking place, and Jesus becomes king. Verse 9, on that day the Lord will become king over the whole earth, the Lord alone and his name alone. From Revelation we know that Jesus is the Lord. He's the king of kings and Lord of lords reigning in Jerusalem. This is referring to Jesus Christ. And God's people, because of that, will dwell in security Verse 11, people will live there and never again will there be a curse of complete destruction. So Jerusalem will dwell in security. So we see the transformation of Jerusalem, but we also see Jesus judges the nations. You know, he starts out with that great verse 12. This will be the plague with which the Lord strikes all the people who have warred against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet and their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. Now, doesn't that sound like a great verse to like put on a plaque to put on your mantle in the living room, right? You know, uh, uh, you know, uh, I believe it was Danielle. Uh, she she got me this plaque a while back. Uh, it has that verse on it, but I don't think Elizabeth will let me put it on the mantle in the living room. Ah, she might. Who knows? She's she's a good sport. Uh, but what we see here, though, is Jesus, Jesus judges the nations. Let me read from Klein's commentary on this. He says, the image of necrosis and putrefying flesh is revolting, but the scene effectively communicates the sudden and utter defeat every one of Jerusalem's enemies will taste. Zechariah does not appear concerned with explaining any physical cause for these calamities. Rather, the prophet makes it clear that the Lord causes these ailments, not some natural physiological occurrence. But I'll tell you what, when I read it, I can't help but think it sure sounds nuclear, doesn't it? <laughs> Just... All right. Uh, and verse 13 says that he will cause a panic. On that day, a great panic from the Lord will be among them so that each will seize the hand of the other and the hand of the one will rise against the other. We see that, that the people, the armies against Jerusalem are all of a sudden going to turn on each other because of the Lord. Uh, this panic will yield to fratricide among the troops. They're going to turn on each other and start killing each other. This is, happens several times in the Old Testament. So that's why I think this is going to happen again. We see this in the Old Testament many times when the enemies of the Lord would march against the Lord. He'd create this 
panic in them and they'd all of a sudden turn against each other. Well, classic one is when Jehoshaphat was uh, told by God to put the praise praise uh, team in the front of the battle to go out before them. Remember that one? Okay. He says, put the, put the praise team, which I thought was a good idea. You know, I'm going to be behind you. And, you know, and Ray, you know, so. No, I'm just kidding. But he put the praise team in front. And because of that, they started praising the Lord. And God then created that turmoil uh, within the armies and they end up turning on each other and they kill each other and the, and the armies of Israel don't even have to do anything. That's what's going to happen here as well as we see in our passage. And so we see this, Jesus judges the nations. And then it ends, verses 16 through 21, that in the end, we will worship. Look at how it it ends. He says, then all the survivors from the nations that came against Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of armies, and to celebrate the festival of shelters. Should any of the families of the earth not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of armies, uh, rain will not fall on them. And if the people of Egypt will not go up and enter, then rain will not fall on them. This will be the plague the Lord inflicts on the nations who do not go up to celebrate the festival of shelters. This will be the punishment of Egypt and all the nations that do not go up to celebrate the fellowship of shelters. On that day, the words holy to the Lord will be on the bells of the horses. The pots in the house of the Lord will be like the sprinkling basins before the altar. Every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of armies. All whose sacrifice will come and use the pots to cook in. And on that day, there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of armies. So here we see that in the end, we will worship. Worship is at the heart of our reason for being. And if worship doesn't delight your soul, perhaps you're not yet ready for heaven, for the return of the king. Because this is what we're going to be doing. And it really will be absolutely enjoyable. Worshiping the king and describing to him how awesome he is and how holy he is. Now, what we're seeing here in this last part is the millennium, the millennial reign of Jesus. And we notice this because it says in verse 16, then all the survivors from the nations that came against Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the king. What's going on here? What we see is that... Okay, if we look at the book of Revelation, we see that the last seven years of the world, the trials and tribulations that take place, that during that time, Antichrist is there and so forth. And with God pouring out his, uh, his seven uh, bowls of wrath before that, the seven uh, seals and the seven trumpets, all the wrath going on, by estimates of some, some three-fourths of the population are going to be wiped out because of that. But some survive. Now, we know that the soldiers, according to this passage and Revelation, the soldiers are all killed, but the people who were opposed to Jesus 
are somehow allowed, they call them the survivors, are allowed to enter into the millennium. So we will have people who are not believers entering into the thousand-year reign, to, into the millennium, with an opportunity still to come to Christ, which is interesting. So we have this thousand-year reign where God says in, in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, that God will take Satan, bound him to where he cannot tempt the nations any longer, and he will put, be put into an abyss, and for a thousand years Jesus will reign, and then he will be let loose again to tempt the nations, and will draw some to him, and then all the, of them get wiped out and cast into the lake of fire. Now, you might, a lot of people say, what's the point of the millennium? Have you ever asked that question? That's why a lot of those theologians I was telling you about, they've embraced what's called amillennialism. They don't even believe in a literal thousand years. They think it's already happening now, the millennium. Because they say, and this is basically their one thing, they just say, I don't get it. Well, let me share with you, and even if you don't get it, if it's in the book, accept it, right? But, if, but let me share with you some perhaps reasons why God has this plan of a thousand-year reign in the millennial period. First of all is to show how we should have run the world. Jesus is going to reign on the throne of Jerusalem, and he's going to rule the world with a rod of iron, it says, and he's going to lead us and show us how we should have ran this world, taking care of the planet, taking care of each other, and just as he told us in Genesis chapter 2 to subdue the world and use it for his glory. He's going to show us how we could have and should have run the world. But secondly, to reveal that sin, not Satan, is ultimately to blame. The wrecking of this world, yes, Satan tempted Adam and Eve, and yes, he does tempt us, but the wrecking of the world was because of sin, because even when Satan's bound, we see in our passage here that some of them will decide, I don't want to worship God. And they're going to get punished for this sin, okay? So we see that people are still going to sin. Uh, the unbelievers that enter into the, into the, the, the millennium. And, and with, even without Satan tempting them, because the real problem is our hearts. All of us have a sinful, unbelieving heart. And our hearts are what are drawn to evil, and so people are going to continue to do that. See, what we need is Jesus. When we put our faith and trust in Jesus, he comes and gives us a new heart, and he begins to work on us and help us become better people. We need Jesus. But sin, but this time period will reveal that even without Satan's temptation, there's still sin and there's still this uh, foolishness. And at the end, many of them will actually even turn to him, but many, many will not. Okay, and that brings me to my next point. I believe it's to provide one last time of grace. That during the millennium, during that thousand years, those people, those lost people, they're going to see Jesus, and they're going to see his kindness. They're going to see his love. They're going to recognize, wow, he could have and should have wiped me out, but he's still gave me another opportunity to place my faith in him. Once you die, that's it. That, there's no more opportunity. And most of the people do end up getting killed before this, but this group here, he gives them that one last opportunity to follow him. 
And that is the mercy of the Lord. He is a good, wonderful God. What we also see is that both Jew and Gentile will worship together during this time. We see the survivors, they will worship. We see the Jews and Gentiles. And this, is, this was the fulfillment of God's original plan. When he called Abraham, he said, you will be a blessing to all nations. He wants Jew and Gentile to worship him. Look at Isaiah chapter 2, 1 through 4. Here we see this uh, speaking of the last days and what it will be like. And I believe, speaking of the millennial period, look what he says. He says, verse 2, In the last days the mountain of the Lord's house will be established at the top of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. Notice the tectonic changes there. All nations will stream to it, and many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us about his ways so that we may walk in his paths. For instruction will go out of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will settle disputes among the nations and provide arbitration for many people. So there's still going to be disputes going on (laughs) during that millennium, but he's going to settle those. They will beat their swords into plows and their spears into pruning knives. Nation will not take up the sword against nation, and they will never again train for war. It will be a glorious day. But this brings up a question, this whole issue of worship, because it says that they will go to Jerusalem once a year for the Festival of Shelters, or the Feast of Tabernacles is what it's also known as, okay? Why the Feast of Tabernacles? I mean, there were three feasts of the Old Testament of the Old Testament that the Jewish people would go to Jerusalem for. So three times a year, the Jewish people were commanded by God to all come to Jerusalem for worship and festival and, and, and so forth. And uh, which, by the way, what we notice in the Bible is that God wants his people to have three weeks of vacation every year. Right? I mean, it's, it's what he commanded them in the Old Testament, three weeks. And this, this particular feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, this was a camping trip. Okay? They, they were to come and build these temporary booths and tents and so forth and camp for a week in their celebration and worship of the Lord. And, and the purpose of that particular one was to remind them of when God had delivered the Israelites out of Egypt and the slavery of Egypt, and then because of their rebellion and refusal to go into the land, God made them wander for 40 years in the desert, okay? So in the wilderness, so this was to remind them that uh, what, what happens when you rebel, but also that God provided for them while they were in the desert. And so we see this wonderful time to remind them. It's kind of like Woodstock, only pure, okay? It is a reminder of God's provision, uh, originally in the desert and the deliverance from Egyptian bondage, but of God's provision of the people who survived, the people who were taken care of in the midst of all of the destruction. They were, uh, they did, were able to dwell in security. So it's a reminder. Um, It is a renewal of the covenant Originally, they would read the law each year at this particular festival, and they would renew their covenant with the Lord. And this is a renewal. This will be a renewal of the new covenant. Just a reminder. You see, God likes earthy memorials. 
Uh, he loves the, when we take bread and wine and, and remember what Jesus did for us. He loves it when we plunge people into the water of baptism. Uh, he has these festivals, these earthy memorials, because he created us physical beings, and he declared that is good. And he wants us to remember that. And uh, as Aaron reminded us, even in worship, he calls us to these earthy ways of declaring our praise to God. And that's what we're seeing here in this, uh, in this particular uh, uh, festival. So that's why the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, but why worship? Holy to the Lord. God is holy. Therefore, everyone and everything is set apart to glorify God. That's our original reason for being. To be holy means to be set apart, okay? God is holy, so God is absolutely unique, separate from everything he created. We were created to glorify and enjoy God in a wonderful relationship of love together. We are holy when we are set apart from sin to God. In the kingdom of God, there is no distinction between secular and sacred. So you have even the horses with bells, the bells on the horses saying, holy to the Lord. Because everyone and everything will be in sync with God's original plan described in Genesis 1 and 2. That's awesome. He brings about his original plan from the beginning. So let me finish first with a chronological order of events, so kind of to remind you, okay, here's how things happen, and then a word of encouragement, okay? So first of all, a chronological order of events from uh, uh, David Levy in his commentary. He, he gives us this, which was, I thought was helpful, okay? So here's kind of how it all, all will transpire. Number one, all the nations of the world will invade Israel in a campaign of battles culminating in what is commonly called Armageddon. Jerusalem will be captured, houses ransacked and plundered for spoil, women raped, and half of the population will be exiled into slavery. That's verses 1 and 2. Second, at the Messiah's second coming, phenomenal changes will occur in the heavenly luminaries. That's verses 6 and 7 in Matthew 24, 29. Number three, in Israel's darkest hour, the Messiah will appear and destroy the nations coming to war against it. Verse 3. The armies will be destroyed by three means. A plague, verses 12 and 15. Panic, causing them to turn on themselves, verse 13. And later by the divine power, Israel will receive to annihilate those who remain. Israel then will gather the spoils of war, verse 14. Number four, when the Messiah arrives, his feet will step on the Mount of Olives, causing it to split apart and form a large valley that will allow a surviving remnant to escape the carnage in Jerusalem, verses four and five. Number five, a mighty river will flow from Jerusalem, watering the Negev and emptying into the dead and Mediterranean seas, verse eight. Number six, the Messiah will rule the earth from Jerusalem and the city's inhabitants will live in safety forever, verses 9 through 11. And in the millennium, nations will be required to appear in Jerusalem to worship the Lord and keep the Feast of Tabernacles, verse 16. Okay, so that's a little chronological order. Let me end 
with a word of encouragement. I heard about a high school football game where the home team was losing terribly. They could not close the gap in the score no matter what they did. The clock was about to run out. Everyone was discouraged and the coach was frustrated. And he looked over to see the cheerleaders for his team sitting on the grass, their pom-poms down beside them, their heads were hung low. Irritated, the coach ran over to the cheerleaders and said, girls, don't you think that our team would do better if you girls would stand up on the sideline and cheer? The head cheerleader looked up and as sincerely as she could said, coach, I think our team would do better if we girls would go out on the field and play. Maybe you've seen a game like that when victory becomes not just unlikely but humanly impossible. That will be the story in the last days for God's people. The whole world, led by a satanic ruler, empowered by the devil himself, will be bearing down not only on the little sliver of land called Israel, but on one city, Jerusalem. The attack will be such that it will be humanly impossible for anything to happen other than defeat. And then Jesus will show up. He will place his feet on the Mount of Olives and he will change the game. Now the same thing that's true for Israel in its last days is true for followers of Jesus right now. When defeat is absolutely inevitable, when victory is humanly impossible, Jesus shows up. He's the game changer. For followers of Jesus, victory is on the same road as defeat. Victory is just a little further on down the road. So if you're being defeated right now, be assured, based on the word of God, your victory is sure in Jesus Christ. Because of his coming, we can have certain victory and the greatest hope. Now, I believe that video games are sometimes, in some ways, realistic. You're supposed to laugh, Now, follow me here. No matter what your strengths, you always have weaknesses. That's what you see in the video games. Water beats fire, but electric and grass beat water, et cetera. Okay, you know how it goes, right? Okay. So, and also, no matter how big the boss is, he will fall, right? Satan will be defeated. Whose side are you on? Are you following the king? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have told us ahead of time what's going to happen in the end so that it will not, it will not catch us by surprise. We confess that sometimes in our life it seems to be going so fast and so many things happen so suddenly to us that it catches us by surprise. But we know it doesn't catch you by surprise. And so we turn to you, and we lean on you, for you will keep us safe. I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know you personally, maybe they know about you, but they don't know you personally, they've never been born again and entered into this true, deep relationship by simply trusting in your son. Father, I ask that you draw them to to you right now that they join your side because you allow people, no matter how bad they've been, you allow them to switch sides. You are good. 
Help us all. We need you, Lord. And help us, however few days we have left, help us to serve you, to live in security, to raise our families, to, to worship you, to love you, and to reach out. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.